Good morning and Merry Christmas. So um, it doesn't feel like Christmas outside, but it feels like Christmas in here, right? So we got Christmas trees and little Christmas stuff here. And we have uh, two weeks, I think, is that right, until Christmas? So from today, so actually Christmas will happen on Sunday. So there, there are a lot of changes that are taking place in the next uh, three weeks. Actually, we will not have Sunday school for uh, a month. So in the next three weeks, there's no Sunday school. So if you don't know this information and that shocks you, then uh, please be aware of this. In the bulletin, look at the schedule, figure it out, because this, some things will change. Because Christmas, Christmas happens on Sunday, and then New Year's Day happens on Sunday, and so that throws a wrench into all the new normal stuff. So uh, we've got that in the bulletin, so you can look at it. We'd like to welcome the guests this morning. If you're visiting with us, there's a, uh, a connection card underneath the seat in front of you. You can fill that out, either electronically or by pen uh, or pencil, and drop it in the box in the back. That's also where we take offerings to give to this ministry and to the church. If you want to just have a prayer, uh, submit a prayer request or just find out any information about the church and getting involved, you can do it through the same connection card or talk to one of the elders or leaders uh, here at the church. So we're going to turn to uh, Colossians. We are not out of Colossians yet, but I think we're at the, at the end, right? So we're we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3, but I'm assuming CF is kind of doing a summary closing out, which is what he typically does when he goes through a book. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. One of the greatest passages of Scripture great to memorize and encourage and to stay focused on. Starting in verse 1, Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. If you were uh, raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory." Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for your truth. I pray that your truth will teach us, guide us, move us, and that every day we will desire to seek more after you, to, to change things, to allow your spirit to move in our lives. And I pray for CF and for uh, your truth to be spoken through him this morning, and that give him the words to say. And I thank you for loving us and caring for us. And I say this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. If you got your Bibles, open them to the book of Colossians. We are going to conclude that book today. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a study of the book of Colossians. Uh, and we're going to conclude that study today uh, by summarizing the whole book. And if you've been consistent to be here, uh, it'll all fit together. But that's how these little books are written or epistles, however you want to call them. They were written to address specific issues in a local church. And so most of them tend to be pretty small, uh, the epistles, that is. And usually the first half of an epistle states a theological or doctrinal truth to set the record straight for whatever error he's going to address. In this case... The church at Colossae was caught up in all kinds of different ideas that they were adding to 
Christianity. And Paul says, the, the one thing that you need to understand is that Christ is the head. Christ is the one you need to focus on. And that's what he's doing here. And so these epistles were written in that way. This epistle is no different than those. First two chapters, very doctrinally solid material. The last two chapters is application of that doctrine. This is how you live this out. This is how you exercise your faith, uh, that kind of thing. And so we're going to take a summary look at the whole book this morning and uh, see how it fits together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll take a look. Father, we come to you in prayer, and we just thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather here to hear your word. We pray for your divine insight and understanding. Pray that you would uh, direct me as I teach and help me to rightly divide your word and explain your word. And, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply that word, and we'd be faithful to do so. So, Father, I give you this time and ask God for your will and for your purpose and all that we do, for it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen. Colossae was a church that is in what we call today modern-day Turkey. And it was about 100 miles inland or from the church at Ephesus, which was on the coastline there. And along with that church, there were many other churches. The Church of Smyrna, Laodicea, Heropolis, all these different churches. Many of them being mentioned in the book of the Revelation and the letters to the churches and stuff. In an area known as the Lycus Valley. That little area there is really the cradle of Christianity. Uh, now granted, I know that Christianity got its beginning in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. Uh, that's pretty clear. But the churches were primarily formed and founded up in that area. They had a lot of churches around the Jerusalem area and such. But that was the area that's most often mentioned, the area in modern-day Turkey that's most often mentioned when you read the Scriptures and read the Bible. So it was an area that was uh, focused upon. Paul never went to the church at Colossae that we have a written record of, but he addresses them, and he tells them, you know, I didn't, I didn't get you started. It was Epaphras that was your former teacher there in verse 7. He's at Epaphras taught you. But he writes this letter from a prison. He's in a Roman prison, and he's awaiting trial, and so he writes what we call the prison epistles, which were uh, primarily Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, uh, Book of Philemon, uh, while he was written there, or incarcerated there, he wrote these letters to him to address specific issues. So he begins the letter in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. And those two verses right there are loaded in theological truth and principle. The one I'm going to choose out of that, well, I'm going to choose two. Saints being those that are sanctified, those that are being sanctified. That's what I told you that word meant. It's an abbreviation for the word sanctified or sanctification. And the other one, uh, as you look there, is the, is the statement in Christ. That is going to be a term right there in verse 2. He says, to the saints and faithful brother in Christ. 
To be in Christ speaks of the positional truth that a believer has. Positional truth being that when you come to faith in Christ, God places you in Jesus Christ positionally. That positioning that he does, that placing in Christ, is eternal relationship with God. It doesn't change. It's in heaven. It's secure. It's kept safe by God. You're to live your life on earth just like your position. So on earth, I refer to your earthly relationship as your condition. Your condition can change. Some days you're in the flesh. Some days you're in the spirit. Sometimes you're in the flesh. Sometimes you're in the spirit. It comes and goes. It moves in and out. But your position never changes. Your position's eternal and it's secure. So when he addresses believers and he calls them saints, he's saying those of you that have been sanctified, what sanctifies you? You have been placed in Christ Jesus. To sanctify means to set apart. It's the same root word that we get our word holy from. Okay, so when you talk about holy, you're talking about something set apart from that which is common. Okay, or every day. So when we talk about saints or we talk about holy brethren, we're talking about people that have been set apart by God for a specific purpose in Christ. You're in that relationship. So that's who he's addressing this letter to. He's, he gives them a standard introduction here and talks about um, you know, Epaphras in verse 7. He said, you've learned from Epaphras, a dear fellow servant whom is a faithful minister of Christ in you, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. This is a good church. It's functioning well. There are not many issues in the church. And then he's, Paul says, I'm going to pray for the church. He says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Knowledge of his will is God's purpose, direction, plan for your life. And how does that comprehended? It's comprehended through wisdom and spiritual understanding. You will gain understanding and growth as you have, verse 10, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord. Okay? To walk worthy means to be, to live your life in line with the standards God has set forth for you. Now, that's very similar to what he says at the conclusion of the book. If you go to chapter 4, verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. So he begins the letter and he ends the letter with a focus upon them living a wise and godly lifestyle. And so he's going to launch off into dealing with some of the issues that this church is facing. And, and that is the various philosophies of that day. He's going to address specific things such as Gnosticism, the culture that they live in, asceticism, legalism, all these external things. What they were doing in that culture, they were telling them, you really need more than just faith in Christ. You need man's philosophy. You need to not touch certain foods. You need to restrict yourself from these things. You need to keep certain days special versus other days. 
which are all fine and good. And you are free to do that on your own. But to throw it out in mass is not what's necessary. What's necessary for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to set that record straight. He's going to say, Jesus is preeminent over everything. That's what he's going to say in verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And firstborn, I told you when we went through that message, uh, uh, prototokos means to have a place of preeminence or authority over everything else. It's not talking about birth order. Firstborn, as it's used there, means the place of preeminence. He's number one. If we, if we said that, uh, I've trained my kids when they were growing up to call me, he is number one dad. He is the best. Number one, number one. That means not number one in what? The whole world as far as the first dad that ever existed. It means number one in preeminence or authority or power like that. That's what, that's what firstborn means. Firstborn means he is over everything. He ranks supreme above all. And then he says, for by him, in other words, he is the active agent. All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. That's very clear of his place of preeminence. We just sang a song and we, we sang a phrase that says, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And a lot of people don't know what that means. Gloria means glory. Excelsis means lofty. Deo is a reference to God. Okay, so what it's saying is glory in our lofty or high lifted God. Glory in the supreme of all beings. This number one that exists. That's another way of saying it. Lofty meaning High, lifted, majestic is what it means, okay? And that's what we're saying when we sing that song. It's, it's written in a different language, and so a lot of people don't know what that means. But you can sing that same song and just say, we glorify our magnificent, exalted, lofty God. That's what you're saying. That's what you're doing when you sing that song. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He says, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist. So what he's doing in this passage is he's showing you the total preeminence of Christ. Christ is number one overall. Anything else is less than him. So when it comes to your worship and your life, Christ should be number one. That's the general theme of the book. Chapter three, the passage that David read. Chapter three, verse one says, if then... And remember, I told you that's a first class condition, assuming the reality of the statement. So that means since, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died. In other words, what you were up until the time of Christ, that's over with. That's gone. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Why? Because you are in Christ now. You have a new position in life. When Christ who is our life appears, 
then you will appear with him in glory. Okay, that statement right there in chapter three, we're going to get to it in a minute. I'm not going to cover it in as much detail. That statement there is what you call a pivot statement in the book of Colossians. A pivot is a place where the book turns or makes a shift. And so what you have in chapters one and two over here, you have heavy doctrinal teaching. Okay, who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? This side over here, how should I live as a result of what he has done over here. And that passage sits right between them, just like a door hinge. Everything in that book hinges on that little point right there. So what he's saying is, is in chapters one and two, he's saying, or he's asking the question, why does all this matter about who Jesus is and why he's in a place of preeminence? It says, because you're supposed to seek those things which are above. You set your mind on those things. That's why it's important. And then when you get in verse five and following in chapter three, why should I live like this? Because of what verses one through four says. Okay. So that serves as the center point of the book. And so is he back chapter one. So he talks about his preeminence over creation. Then he's going to talk about his preeminence over the redemption that exist, okay? You look at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. And here's this word again, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he ranks in preeminence over death, okay? He was resurrected. He is the first that, it, that takes that position. He has preeminence from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. In other words, so that in everything Christ might rank supreme. For, it, verse 19, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth, in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. See, man is a rebel. And because man is a rebel or is against God, God has to redeem man, or if you will, purchase him back. Where is he purchasing us back from? When we hear that word redeem, what's that tell us? Well, because of sin in the Garden of Eden, we're sinners. We inherit Adam's sin. We commit sin, okay? And so Christ comes and he redeems us out of the slave market of sin. Redemption was a word that was used a lot considering a slave market. You would, you would purchase that slave out of that market. You would go to the marketplace and you would redeem the items that were there. How would you redeem them? You go up there and you give them money and the item becomes yours and you're free to do with it as you choose. You follow that? That's the idea of redeeming, buying something back. In our case, Christ is redeeming us from sin. Sin has destroyed man. Sin changes the way man thinks. He changes the way, sin changes the way man relates to each other. And so the two primary keys to the great commandment is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the problem with that is, is because of sin, we don't love God, 
and because of sin, we don't love our fellow man. So both relationships are thrown off. What Christ does is he redeems us. He buys us out of that sin and he puts us in him so we can be his treasured possession through all eternity. And then what he does is in time is he says, you need to live out what you truly are. You're not that corrupt, wicked sinner that I redeem. You are now in me. And you say, oh, I beg your pardon. If you knew what I was thinking this morning when my wife was talking to me on the way to church, you wouldn't be saying that, man. See, we have those evil thoughts, those evil ideas and stuff. Why is that? Because our bodies have not been, we have not experienced the full redemption of our body. We have been redeemed in the sense that we're placed in Christ and we're, de we're declared righteous and delivered from our sin. He is delivering us in time in that day by day, we have the freedom to say no to sin and to live for Christ. And that he's going to ultimately redeem us and give us a new body so we're completely set free from it one day. Amen. So three phases of salvation. So our redemption is a direct result of what Christ has done for us. He is the head of the body. And so he says in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself. So he takes the evil fallen world, he redeems this world, and then he reconciles it. What does it mean to reconcile? Reconcile means to bring back into proper standing. So the first thing he does is he purchases me out of the slavery of sin. And then after he purchases me out of the slavery of sin, my relationship with him has been reconciled. And how can my relationship with him be reconciled? He purchased me out of sin, and then he gives me his imputed righteousness. And when I get his imputed righteousness, I'm just as righteous as God is positionally with him. Okay? That's how all that happens. And so he says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. He's brought you back to where you need to be. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. How can he present me holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight? It's because of my position, folks. I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Me walking here on earth, sometimes righteous, sometimes not. Me in my position, fully righteous, fully right, okay? He goes on and he says, Christ is preeminent in the church. Beginning in verse uh, 24, he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. The body of Christ is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. Now, what is all that talking about, that mysteries and stuff? Well, a mystery in the Bible 
is simply something that was not previously revealed. If you went back into the Old Testament, you would see passages talking about the first coming of the Messiah, and you'd see passages talking about the, end, the last coming of the Messiah. You'd see both of those. What you don't see in the Old Testament is you don't see the church, okay? And so what that reveals to us is, is that it's a mystery. You don't see it around here in Huntsville, but if you left from here and you drive out to West Texas or up to Colorado or go east to like Smoky Mountains or something and look at a mountain range, you look at it from a distance, you see various peaks. And many times they have snow on top of them. And you can look at them. As you look at them, it looks like everything's together. As you get closer, you start seeing depth between those mountains. You start seeing, oh, this mountain, he's not back with that other, that other one's way out there. But this other one's here. Well, what's between those mountains? There's a valley between those mountains. And so when you look in the Old Testament, what you see is you see that first mountain, you see that second mountain. What you don't see is that valley. And that valley is the mystery. That between his first coming and his last coming, he's going to have a whole new group of people that he's going to deal with. You know who that is? That's the church. Not this church building, but the church, the called out ones, those who have been called out of the world under Christ, those who are true believers, they're going to be referred to as the church. So that's why he calls it a mystery. He says, to them, verse 27, to them God will to make known what are the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We, him, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So he tells them what's really important is the person of Christ. He ranks preeminent over all. Then in chapter 2, he gets into some of the basic errors they were dealing with. Look at verse 8. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. Now, philosophy, philosophia, is a compound word, philo meaning love, sophia meaning wisdom, and is the love of wisdom. And many times you go to college, you take philosophy and you study philosophy, you get your doctor's degree, you get a doctor's of philosophy, uh, so forth and so on. Philosophy in and of itself is not evil. You need to understand that, okay? Philosophy is just the love of wisdom. What makes this philosophy in that church evil is what he says in that context. He says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. And it means in direct conflict to what God says in his scripture. That's the philosophy he's warning against. Anything that gives a false representation of God that's built on the philosophy of man. I shared a Sunday school class this morning. The only way you can know about God is what God reveals to you. And people all the time, they muse and comment about, well, you know, I think God ought to do this. I think God ought to do that. Uh, trust me, God does not take your suggestions. Not, he doesn't even read them. They don't, they're meaningless to him. He's saying, okay, whatever you want, just keep thinking. And people come up with these crazy things. You know what that's according to? Tradition of men. 
that's according to what man thinks, to where what man thinks should be right. Well, I think God should be like this. Understand this, folks. You're operating on limited data. You're operating basically upon what you've been told by other people and what you've experienced in life, which is very limited. It's also limited by where you live because situations are unique all over the world and stuff. So your view and idea will be radically different than someone that lives in, say, Central Africa or Siberia or Europe. You're going, everything's different. Everyone's got a different worldview and their projection of God comes from their life experience and their worldview. So what God does is he gives us his revelation. He reveals to us what is right and proper. That's what he's talking about when he says, don't be corrupted by vain philosophy that is according to the tradition of men. Okay. He says, verse nine, for in him, See, there's that position again. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of principalities and powers. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hand. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You need to underline that word all. Uh, that's extremely important. Complete forgiveness in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what's the benefit of that? Well, the, the laws of man don't hold bearing against me. Look what he says in the next one. He says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So all that was in the world that condemns us, and what condemns us? Well, God's holy standard, folks, condemns us. And it tells us that we don't measure up to God's standard. So how is that taken out of the way on my behalf? It's taken out of the way because Christ comes and he fulfills that. He lives every aspect of that. There was not, according to scripture, one jot nor tittle left undone by Christ. He fulfilled it all. Then so he goes to the cross and makes payment on our behalf. He says, in the law of God, I have fulfilled it all. I have lived it all. I have done it all. And he goes to the cross as the perfect man who walked here on earth. He goes as the perfect man, having lived everything perfect. He puts himself on that cross and he says, I have lived it all. And so God takes and puts our sin on him because he is the only sinless one that can bear it. He puts our sin on him and he dies in our place. He's buried and he's raised again. Then he ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father, into the holy of holies on our behalf. And he resides there as our great high priest now. And so see the handwritings of requirements that were against us, he has fulfilled them. But not only has he done that, because he kept every bit of that law and he's perfectly righteous, he says, 
that we have his imputed righteousness given to us. Uh, we get that out of 2 Corinthians. For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so what he does is he imputes or transfers to our account his keeping every jot and tittle of the law. We get credit for that. People say, well, that ain't fair. That's right. It's called grace. That's what it's called. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. We don't earn it. There's nothing we've done to get it. But he does it on our behalf and transfers it to our account. And we stand clothed in his righteousness with his righteousness. Okay? That's what he's talking about. He's taking this out of the way. Because see, folks, when you're born in the world, you're born a natural rebel. You are against God. You are against your fellow man. If you don't believe that, bring up some children. And bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and see how obedient they are. You don't have to teach your children to lie. You don't have to teach them to hit, bite, scream, holler. They come out of the womb screaming and hollering, wanting their way. What's that baby wanting? He wants one thing. He wants a nipple. That's what he wants. He wants some milk. That's what he wants. And he'll scream, throw a fit, shake his fist, do everything that he can do. Why? Because he's hungry. And everything's going to stop to take care of him or her, either one. Little, little girl baby is just as bad. Uh, <laughs> so he take care of both. I was using that in the generic sense, okay? And he, that's what it's all about. And thus the statement is that children are really a loud noise on one end and no responsibility on the other. That's what babies are. Loud, screaming mouth and no responsibility whatsoever. Just mess everything up. Man. And so what happened? Well, they just get bigger. They start growing and they're able to express that sinfulness to a greater extent. And we just grow up like that. And what's our basic? We want everything our way. Hence the Burger King, the original Burger King commercial, the Whopper, you can have it your way. Buddy, if that don't sell, that is a marketing genius right there, man. Because you can have it your own way. If that's what we want in life, we want it our way. We want it our way. And anyone that doesn't come our way is evil, despicable, and needs Jesus in their life, man. Right? That's the way we view the world. We view the world from our selfish viewpoint. That's what he saved us from, folks. That's what he's talking about here. He says he has delivered us from that. He has Nailed it to the cross because we're born in the world rebelling against everything God says. Hating everything. And so when we're redeemed, he gives us that commandment. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbors yourself. How are we going to do that? Well, number one, understand what you have in Christ and then start applying it to your life. But the handwritings of requirement is all those charges against us. He's taking it out of the way. He said, that's why he says in verse 16, Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a substance of things to come, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is in Christ. What's he saying is that Christ fulfilled that. He kept that. Now, if you want to keep a certain day or a certain feast or a certain festival, that's fine. But you can't. As these people are doing is tell everyone, you got to do this. 
You have to keep this day. You have to keep the Sabbath. If you want to do that, that's fine. That's between you and God. That's your individual conviction with God. But as far as God's concerned, that's your judgment. He says, don't let anyone judge you on that. Then he says, let no one defraud you of your reward, taken delight in false humility and worship of angels. So they were worshiping angels. They were, they were getting into this mystical, I hear this all the time, especially with Hollywood types, man. They say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I am spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. And that's true because man is spirit. Man is basic essence is spirit in a physical body. That makes sense to you? And so what happens with, when you don't have a prescription to direct you to God, which God reveals to us through the word, then anything that you think is right is how you worship God. And that's what they were doing. He says, look what he says in his passage. Don't anyone defraud your, of your reward, taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding to those things which he has not seen, Vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments and grows with increase, which is from God. He says, don't get off into that old false uh, uh, mystic type worship. He goes on and he says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in a world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to commandments and doctrines of men. These things have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. What's he saying? If you want to do that, fine, but it's not beneficial as far as your relationship to God eternally. That's secure in Christ. Why? He has redeemed you. He has purchased you. What happened here is they had ascetics and legalists. Legalists add to ascetics are those that say you can't do. You can't do certain things. Okay? Ascetics would, are those that deprive themselves. Think of like a monk or something, depriving themselves of basic uh, comforts of life because they say it brings them closer to God. Okay? And if you don't do that, you're not really close to God. If you'll notice something about people like that, they're always going to try to recruit people with them. They're like, it's kind of like in life, man. You know how to know if someone is a vegetarian or is in CrossFit or is in, uh, or is an atheist? They will tell you. <laughs> they will tell you. They'll tell you I'm an atheist. They'll tell you I'm a vegetarian. And they will tell you they're in CrossFit. Okay? <laughs> those are three certainties of life, man. You're going to get told those things, okay? You're going to get informed from the very beginning that, that that's the way it is. And then there's this process whereby they start trying to recruit you into that activity. Okay? That's what happens in this false religion stuff. People are constantly trying to get people to cling with them. He said, don't worry about that. Focus on Christ. Christ is the head of it all. And so we get to our pivot passage, and he says, now this is how you apply. If Christ is preeminent over creation, 
If you are to set your mind on things above, if you're to seek those things which are above, if you're to do all that, how do you do it? He says, take off the old clothes, take off the old lifestyle and put the new one on. He says in verses five through 11, he says, okay. He says, get rid of fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he goes on, verse eight. He says, you also got to put off this anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He says, get rid of all that stuff. Take that out of your life. And what do you put in? Verse 12, put in tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Well, Paul, how do I do that? How do I just take off this old lifestyle and put on this new lifestyle? He says, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule means to be an umpire. He says, let the peace of God rule over your heart. And what does an umpire do? You watch a game, umpire throws a flag, basketball, he blows a whistle. What's he there for? He's to make sure people compete according to the rules, to compete according to the guidelines. Guy steps out of bounds, blows the whistle, plays over, stop, restart the play, all right? Or start the next play from that position right there. So forth and so on. I'm not going to go through all the different levels of umpires, but an umpire is to tell you you're out of bounds. When he says, let the peace of God rule your heart, when you don't have the peace of God in your heart, that is how the Holy Spirit is telling you you're out of bounds. You're out of bounds. You're not competing according to rules. And you need to stop and recognize what is it that's causing this. And it's going to be one of two things. You're either at odds with a person or you're at odds with God. Now, let me tell you how you can be at odds with God. You can have overt sin, but you can also think something wrong. Well, you know, God, I don't believe that you really forgave me for that. You doubt God's forgiveness. That's one of the biggest things. Your old heart is going to, is going to tell you, man, you don't have peace. You've got anxiety. You're out of bounds, brother. You're way out of bounds. You're not even in the stadium. You're so far out here. You've been dragging this nonsense around for a long time. So let the peace of God rule in your hearts and minds with which you were called in one body and be thankful. And how do you let the peace of God rule in your heart? Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. What's he saying there? That's parallel passage to Ephesians 5 where he says, be filled with the Spirit. Not be drunk with wine, which is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit of God control you. What's going to happen? You're going to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. What happens when the Word of Christ dwells in you richly in all wisdom? You're going to be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs. What he's saying is the same thing. You let the word of Christ dwell in you. You be controlled by the word of Christ versus what? Human wisdom, my personal ideas. You see all these other things. He says, let the word of Christ direct you and live your life like that. And whatever you do, verse 17, 
in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then he goes into the family, and he's talking about relationship. Now, why would he go into the family? Because the family is the basic unit where all this stuff begins, folks. It is the genesis of leadership. It is the genesis of relationships. It is the beginning of all that a person's going to do in their life is the family. Because see, when God created the family, He created man and woman. He put them together as a unified team. He has the man. He says, it's not good that he be alone. I'm going to get him a helper. Boom, we're going to complete them. Now they're one solid unit. They're ready to go. What are they going to do, Lord? They're going to bring up children in their nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're going to lead and guide them on how to focus on God 24 hours a day and love me perfectly. The devil comes, what does he do? Bam! He busts that relationship up. What does that sin do? Well, now, instead of them being a unified front and in oneness, the woman wants to control the man and the man wants to control the woman. There's conflict in that relationship. The man wants to dominate the woman. The woman wants to dominate the man. And that conflict goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So how do we fix that? Well, the way you fix it is you let the peace of God rule in your heart. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You understand this, that your wife is your sister in Christ. Your husband is your brother in Christ. So you treat them with tender mercies, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint in another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. You do those basic Christian principles in your life, and then you understand what your relationship is to be. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So what's that mean? Wife, you show honor and respect to your husband. Husband... Love your wife and do not be bitter toward them. Let's get the team back together so that they can lead. And then he says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing in the Lord. Now, how does a four-year-old child know? Does he read the Bible and say, oh, I'm supposed to be obeying my parents? No, he learns it because the parents now are unified and on the same page. They're providing a united front. They're bringing the children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So what are they doing? They're teaching those children. A child cannot obey unless he's been taught what to obey. Where does that come from? The parent. The parent instructs those children. And so those that's really a, a statement to adults. It's the parents is what it's to. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Well, how can my children obey? Ooh, I need to be teaching them. I need to be training them. That's what I need to be doing. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. How does a father provoke a child? Well, you could do it through agitating and picking at them, but one of the most common ways is just simply neglect them. Don't give them boundaries. Don't give them guidelines. Don't teach them right from wrong. And they're going to grow up very frustrated, and they're going to grow up angry, and they're going to grow up bitter because human nature cries out for what? Order, we do. We want order, we want structure, we want guidance, we want help. We don't want to go through this life alone. You go to a place where you don't know anyone, what's one of the first things you do after you've been there? You have to go to one of these conferences 
where they do this stupid team stuff. You sit there and play these games. They call it team building and stuff. And uh, first day there, you know, everyone's got their guard up and stuff. And they use things called icebreakers and stuff. What they're trying to do is get you to relate to each other. And then you start realizing, I need somebody, but I don't want these dudes right here. And, and so what happens, you end up relating to them and stuff. Same thing's true in life. Kids need to have that in life so they know how to relate in life. If they don't have instruction, they can't do it. If they don't have guidance, they can't do it. Come work in a prison system. I've been in a prison system a long time. And the common denominator in there is, is one thing. Don't have fathers. 80-something percent of them don't have a father active and involved in their life. And those that do have a father, they aren't functioning right. My father was an alcoholic. My father beat me. I've, I've never heard any good statement. You, you go to the commissary on Mother's Day and they can't stock enough cards because every one of them dudes is writing his mom. Come Father's Day, there ain't hardly any cards go out of the prison on Father's Day. I've had guys tell me if I could meet my dad, I would kill him. I would destroy that man for what he did in my life. That's the kind of comments that you hear. And I've listened to them for four decades of how they speak of that. Where does that come from? Fathers not working with their wives, being united front, giving guidance to those children, leaving them to their own sinful devices. And you create a society, what we're living in, folks. You're living in a society that is a direct reflection of rebellion. And apart from a great spiritual awakening hitting this country again, it's going to keep getting worse, folks. It's going to keep getting worse because the, we're pumping out more and more of them, selfish, self-centered. And, and so what, what happens to the previous generation? We're going to fix this problem of these kids being upset about stuff. We're going to just give them everything they want. Well, how has that worked out? We're going to give them a trophy, even if they get in dead last. We're going to pat them on the back, even if they're not even turning in their homework. Because we give these other kids a star, we're going to give them a star. And kids never learn that life is not a freebie, that life is not a give me. Now, some of you younger folks in here, you're seething with rage inside over what I'm saying. And that's fine. That's the way you were brought up. But I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible teaches. If you don't learn in that family unit how to deal with loss, how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with not winning, that's what mom and dad are there for. They're there to show you how do I deal with bad setbacks in life. Because let me tell you something, setbacks and failures in life can be the biggest launching pad to success that you ever face. You will learn so much from that. You will grow. You will experience life in a fuller sense because of having that. But you also learn that because you don't get that, you don't have to run around and act like a fool and be mad and angry. And what happens is they just grow up with that anger in them. So Paul's saying, get that family unit right. Get them together in your employment, servant. If you're working for someone, obey them. Do what they tell you to do. Give them honest work when you work. But do it heartily, verse 23, is unto the Lord, not to men. For you are serving the Lord in every area of your life. And you employers treat your employees in a right way because you have a master in heaven. That's what he tells them. Put on the new man, take off the old man. And then he tells them, he gives them final instructions in chapter 4, verse 2. Pray for me. And then from verses 7 
through the end, which is what we just looked at the last few weeks, he's recognizing all these people that helped him be successful in the ministry that he had. That's what the book of Colossians is. It's about setting your mind on things above, seeking Christ, focusing on that and making that the number one priority of your life, and then living it out day by day in everything that you do. Walking in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Understanding that every minute of life is to be lived for God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn to be forgiving. Learn to be kind. Learn to love other people as Christ has loved you. You're secure in Christ. You can do that because in Christ we have everything that you need to be successful in life. That's what he's telling us in this book. Live it out, walk it out, flesh it out day by day in all that you do. Colossians, I felt like, was a good book. I felt like it gave us some good instruction on living for the Lord and, and it's beneficial to us because it covers the whole gamut of Christianity. And understand this, Paul wrote that in one little brief letter. And what did he do when he wrote that letter? He gave it to those guys. Otychicus was standing there. Paul rolls that thing up, tapes it up and said, you take this to the church. You take it to them. And when you get it up there, they start writing copies of it. And they start passing out to other churches. And here we are in 2022. It's sitting here with us. And it came from Paul's jail cell. That's how God's instruction is to his people. Those people there are dealing with the same issues you're dealing with. And what is that? My relationship with God and my relationship with my fellow man. That may be in a different setting, but it's the same issues, folks. That's where our problem is. And the problem and the way to fix it is within us. Because I cannot control how other people act, but I can sure control how I respond to it and how I act in my life. And that's what God's called me to do is manage my life and apply this to my life, okay? There's a bunch of you out there. I can show you where you need to be doing in your life, and that's a whole lot more fun uh, to counsel you and direct you and to get some more bengays where my elbow don't hurt, but I can sit there like this, man, I can point to you. But the best pointing that's ever done is when you look at yourself. Because if I can fix me, then it doesn't matter how other people live, I can function. Because I can take it. I can take it. It's not going to bother me. I'm going to be able to navigate through life without letting that bring me down. And when you and I can get our focus on ourselves and who we are in Christ, you can face anything that life throws at you and you can face it successfully. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your love toward us for all the many blessings we have. And our prayer is, God, that we know we fall short and we come up short, but help us, Father, to recognize what we need to do individually and what steps we need to take individually to live out the life that you've given us. My prayer is, Lord, that we be found faithful in what we do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.